0: Well, we're going to have a look here mainly at one verse in John 13, and that is verse 10. Jesus said to him, him being Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, plural, are clean, but not every one of you. This is usually a text, John 13, that we read on Monday Thursday because the events take place on Monday Thursday. But you may not realize just about a third of the Gospel of John takes place on Maundy Thursday. And yet this one, we go back to the well again and again, usually because we, we often have accompanied it with ceremonial foot washings. I remember one uh, uh, Maundy Thursday, we were up here with, I think, five different churches, and all the pastors came and washed the feet of a church member of a different church. It was a beautiful show of, of Christian unity and servant leadership and, and a wonderful time. Sometimes we'll also go back to this passage, when it's not Monday, Thursday, it's not Holy Week at all, to talk about serving one another. How Jesus said that he was doing this to show us how to love one another. What I, your Master and Lord, do for you, so do for one another. And that's good as well. But there is something even deeper that we can find if we drill down into this passage. It's fairly obvious. It comes up right in the middle of it. And it comes thanks to Peter and his trademark boneheadedness for which we should be eternally thankful, I believe. Now, chapter 13 begins with verse 1, predictably. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. This gives us the setting here, the context, which we need, of course, to understand it. This is Jesus and his disciples celebrating the fourth Passover of his ministry. They come every year to Jerusalem and they have the Passover together. And it says that he knew that his hour had come. Notice then that Jesus trusted entirely in the sovereignty of the Father. He knew his hour had come. Before this, there are a good number of references to his hour not having yet come, to his time not having yet arrived. There are times even when people tried to kill him. They were going to throw him off a cliff outside Nazareth. He turned and walked through their midst. He said, my time has not yet come. And he knew, in the words of David Livingston, that he was immortal until God's purposes for his life had been fulfilled. Now, when you're the son of God, that immortal thing gets ratcheted up. But all of us could say that, certainly. It's no excuse to be reckless, of course. We should be careful and wise with how we carry out our lives. But we can know and be comforted that until God's purposes for our lives are fulfilled, we are untouchable. And then, of course, once they are fulfilled, what do we want to hang around here for? Now, at this point, Jesus knew that his hour had to come. It was his time. And he was weighed down, of course, by this, as anyone would be. He was about to face the the hardest thing anyone would ever face, the greatest trial, the greatest sorrow, the greatest pain. And this is the moment, then, that his disciples probably should have been comforting him and, and ministering to him and serving him. And what do we find him doing but serving them, comforting them? That's the kind of Savior and Lord that we have. It says that during the meal, he went, he took off his outer garment, he put on, he tied around his waist a towel. This is basically the uniform of a servant, a lowly servant in the house, and went and did the lowest servant's job. Now, I realize it's so funny how you can, for your entire life, read a passage and sort of have the wrong picture. I was talking about with the the woman with the issue of blood, how I had this notion in my mind for so long of her kind of crawling along the ground and then realized she wasn't and corrected it, and suddenly it had a little bit more meaning, and it made a little more sense. For some reason in my mind, lurking in the background, I had this picture when Jesus washes the disciples' feet of a bunch of chairs lined up, and all the disciples, like him, saying, I'm going to do something. Everybody sit down against the wall there where I have the chairs. And then he comes along and washes their feet. I think because my whole life I have occasionally seen us in the church commemorating this, by ceremonially symbolically washing one another's feet. In the Baptist Church, it's not a sacrament or an ordinance, but it's something that is a great visual reminder of what Jesus came to do and would have us do for one another. That's not what happened. There was no there was no line of chairs along the wall. Rather, Jesus did what a servant would do while well, they were reclining at table. Which means they're think about this. I feel weird when I go to a really fancy restaurant. If you go into the bathroom. And they hand you a towel, the bathroom attendant and things. I'm like, I can do this. I'm not. Now this is the guy who created the universe, who stepped out on nothing with a handful of nothing and made everything. And as they eat and celebrate, he comes along and does this menial task of washing their feet. Seems like the conversation just died at that point, as it would. And he goes around, he washes their feet, he does this great thing that is for us an example. And we don't miss the mark when we preach this as an example. In fact, if Larry would have kept reading the next three verses, I didn't ask him to, but if he would have just decided to, we would have heard, uh, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. So he takes on the form of a servant, the servant of sinners. And he will lower himself even yet further, far lower than this. Before the night is out, and even more the next day when he is pinned naked to a cross and bleeds and dies and is humiliated for us, bears our shame so that we can bear his righteousness. But then he comes to Peter. Peter, you know the story almost certainly, pulls back. Oh, no, 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 no. You will never wash my feet. And we all pile on Peter. It's another instance where poor Peter becomes the whipping boy for the very church of which he is the head, which I don't get that. It's a good thing that Peter, being a little bit boneheaded, is the rock on which he builds his church, because it gives hope to people like Sean everywhere. (laughs) And me, and you. I think that we also want to lay off him when he's walking on the water, and he looks down and he sinks. Eleven guys in the boat didn't even get out of the boat. I've never walked on water, even a few steps. Peter's faith is wonderful, and his willingness to just go and do it and not overthink it. He just had to figure out how to not underthink it either. But yeah, he comes along, he pulls his feet back, you will never wash my feet. I think what we see here is a a laudable thing, that what he sees is Jesus down low and him lifted up, and in his heart, he correctly knows that's backwards, He has this sense of Christ's exaltedness, his own lowliness, and that's good. He remembers the first time he realized who Jesus was, the miraculous catch of fish. And now he fell down at Jesus' feet and said, away from me, for I am a sinful man. That was the place he should be, at Jesus' feet. Now Jesus is at his feet. He's like, this is weird. I don't know about this. I don't like this. He doesn't understand what Jesus is doing and his, his only real mistake is the standard Peter goof up of rushing ahead to some extreme pronouncement or extreme action without stopping to weigh things. So yes, Jesus is modeling for them the message he has taught and lived for years now that the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all, that the first is last, the last is first, the least is greatest, and it's a lesson all Christians should meditate on all of us should learn this lesson and take it to heart, but in the midst of this lesson, another deeper, more spiritual teaching comes to the surface, and it's, it's so perfect that it's in John. The gospel that begins not with, here is the genealogy that leads up to Jesus, but rather with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It begins with this sense of, of a cosmic battle and something huge happening behind the scenes. When Peter objects, Jesus uses the idea of washing as a spiritual picture to teach something deeper yet. And in the midst of this teaching, he makes a pronouncement. Three words in our English translations, three words in the original Greek. You are clean. The you is in the plural, and it's a simple statement. What are you? Clean. You are clean. Now, God could pronounce this blessing on Adam and Eve before the fall. You are clean. You are innocent in my sight. But when sin entered the picture, this cleanness was lost. And mankind was put out of God's presence. And ever since then, our uncleanness has separated us from him. And every religion mankind has concocted has been an attempt to wash away that stain of iniquity and regain that state of spotlessness, that innocence before our God. And yet all the good deeds, all the sacrifices, all the rites and rituals and ceremonies that we could ever put together are unable to wash away the least of our sin. And bearing that in mind, it's kind of a crazy statement that Jesus looks at these guys and says, you are clean. Even considering Jesus' own parables... I'm not overstepping i know i'm not when i say that you and i can take these words as applying to us as well because the reason he could say them to his apostles applies to anyone who has put their faith in jesus and been born again if that describes you hear jesus words you are clean but also remember jesus words when he was giving us say the parable of the lost son also called the prodigal son who are we in this story we are the son who took our inheritance early Basically disowned the father, went off to a foreign Gentile land, lived it up in sin and debauchery, used it all up, found ourselves wallowing with the pigs, the most unclean of animals in the Old Testament law, eating from their trough and saying, oh, what have I done? And coming to ourselves. And then Jesus looks at us and says, you are clean. What a pronouncement. And he just throws it out there in the midst of teaching something else. Now, there are two different verbs here that he uses related to washing, and it's important that you see the distinction. You may want to jot a little note or two in your Bible in the margin. The first one I want to look at is luo, which means to bathe. He says, He that is bathed, that would be the best translation. He that is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. The first washing verb refers to our coming to Christ, being bathed, being cleansed of all our sin. This is pictured in the waters of baptism, where our sin has been washed away and we go under and it's a living picture of our being washed, our dying in Christ and being raised with him. This is the once for all death of Jesus on our behalf. This is the fountain that washes away our sin and filth. When Jesus died on the cross, a Roman centurion went up and pierced him between the ribs and out of his side came blood and water. And just like this has both a practical and spiritual application as Jesus washes our feet, so does that. The practical is the pericardial sac around the heart has been pierced now. And he's dead, definitely dead, dead, dead. There's no question about it. This guy has died. And when they bury him, that's that, they think. The spiritual is water and blood come pouring out of his side. He washes us with his blood. He makes us clean by the shedding of his blood. Revelation 1.5, he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. One more time. I'm doing a little thing where I'm trying to weed out the Presbyterians. He loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. There we go, sort of. There we go, Kim. I was waiting on you. This is what we call regeneration in theology, right? Being made a new creation. This is what we call justification in theology, being proclaimed righteous by God himself. The bathing happens in our believing. By grace through faith, we are washed, we become clean, personally clean, legally clean in God's eyes. In just a couple of chapters Jesus is going to say, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Think about this. You are because he says so. So we can trust that we are clean because he says so. Way, way back, thousand years earlier, David is praying, Lord, wash me and I will be whiter than snow though my sins are like scarlet, like, like I'm wearing a clean garment that then was stained with blood of unclean animals and I can't get this stain out, you will wash me and I will be whiter than snow. This is what we see in the luo verb, the one who has bathed, who is bathed. All of us washed clean. I've been told a number of times that I must be brainwashed because I'm a believer. You probably have heard that as well. That's tossed around. I find invariably the people who say that are the most brainwashed people that I've ever met. They're just brainwashed by something else. But I always respond with, you know, you're right. And if you knew what goes on in my brain, you'd know that it needs to be washed. He came, he washed our hearts, he washed our minds, he washed our consciences, he washed our souls, our very selves, and now we are clean. In him. A great 19th century Scottish churchman, Horatius Bonner, he wrote this When I believe in Christ as the righteousness, I am immediately righteous. When I receive him as the life, I have life. When I receive him as redeemer, I am redeemed. When I receive him as the sinner's surety, I am pardoned. There is no condemnation for me. When I receive him as the dead and risen Christ, I die and rise again. Then he goes on to describe the present and immediate results of these things. They spring straight from that oneness with him, he says, that as a believing man, I enter upon his fullness. I become partaker of his riches and so identified with himself that his cleanness is accounted my cleanness. His excellence, my excellence. His perfection, my perfection. As he was the lamb without blemish and without spot, so I am clean every whit. And to me, as part of the as part of the cleansed bride, the lamb's wife, it is said, "You are so beautiful, my beloved, so perfect in every part." This was predicted and prophesied in Jeremiah twenty-three. Jeremiah prophesied a lot about what we're reading in in Ezra, the return to Israel, the rebuilding and restoring of God's people and the Old Covenant. And yet he also predicts the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And that's what he's doing in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, when he says, "'Behold, the days are coming,' declares the Lord, "'when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, "'and he shall reign as king and deal wisely "'and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land.'" In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, Yahweh Sidhunu, which means, the Lord, my righteousness. The Lord, my righteousness. Not the Lord has his righteousness, and I have to match it, but rather, the Lord is my righteousness. I have been submerged in it, and it is mine. The second verb is nipto, and that means to wash, to wash something. Usually in the New Testament, nine out of ten times, it's used about washing hands. Jesus' enemies are always, why, why aren't you and your disciples ceremonially washing your hands the way that we're supposed to according to the rules? It can be washing feet, it can be washing other things. Rhymes with tiptoe, which was the heart of a very convoluted mnemonic device that I used 25 years ago when I first started learning Greek in order to remember it and remember the meaning to this day. Nipto, to wash. And he says, the one who has bathed, that other verb, does not need to wash except for his feet. See, in preparation for the Passover feast, they would have bathed themselves thoroughly. In fact, the custom was to bathe twice. But after bathing... They walked to the house where the upper room had been prepared for the Passover feast, and they were either wearing nothing or sandals on their feet, and the roads were dusty, and now their feet were dirty, which is why there was always a servant giving the job, always the lowest one on the totem pole, to go and wash everyone's feet, usually as they entered. Apparently, Jesus gave that servant the night off, or I think more likely said, pull up a cushion and join us. And they came in, and until this happens with Christ coming around in the role of the servant, everyone's feet remained dirty, which I want to see that painting. Early on in that last supper when they're all around, and of course you know that they would put a cushion down and lean way, way low to the ground on the table and eat like that, which sounds just like a marvelous way to eat and digest, and their feet would be sticking out and to have them just be filthy because Jesus hasn't yet come around and washed them. Jesus, as he does this, and as he speaks in verse 10, makes a clear contrast between that one bathing, being washed in the blood of Jesus, our acceptance in him by grace through faith, that on one hand, and this daily washing on the other. The washing of feet. We see that my my failures, my frailties, my weak flesh, and yours cannot do anything to cancel out his having accepted us. Now, they can, they can wreak havoc on our sense of being accepted, but they cannot get in the way. Nothing on heaven or earth can separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Having received that great cleansing, we know we can come to him now to wash our dust and dirt from our feet. When we've been covered in dust by the, the day that we've lived, when we've walk through places that we ought not to and and we've gotten our feet extra dirty, we know He will indeed wash us. That passage that Larry read earlier from 1 John, key here. If you say that you have no sins, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. John also says if you go on living in sin, if you go on loving your sin, not hating it, not fighting it, not despising it, you haven't been bathed you haven't been born again. You're not one of His. But when you are following Him, you're still going to get your feet dirty. And if you tell yourself, I haven't, oh, I've gotten to the point where I I walk so carefully that I don't get dirty. You're deceiving yourself when the truth is not in you. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This Daily washing is what Jesus is commanding when he gives us the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and tells us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Daily, we must confess our sins. And yet it doesn't mean daily we lose our salvation and have to get it again. People often will, will stray enough, just enough where they feel like they have to get saved again. That's nothing. That's not a theological category. That's bad theology. In fact, I asked Calvin when we were driving back from Lake Louise. I said, how was, how was the teaching? He said, it was really good. It was quite good. And I said, was there anything? There's always one weird thing that the, the preacher always says. I noticed that when I was in high school and, and junior high even, I think. And he said, well, he did say, raise your hand or come up if you want to get saved or saved again. Better theology of my 14-year-old son than the preacher there, or he just misspoke, which probably is the case. But we have this sense of wanting to get, oh, no, i gotta, I got to go do the whole washing again. i got to go get baptized again. i got to get saved again. No, this is in the perfect tense, the one who is bathed. The perfect tense, we don't have it the way they have it in the Koine Greek and English. It's, it's like when Jesus says it is finished. Something happened in the past, continues the effects continue into the present and then on into the future and theologically this will bear us to really kind of overdo that grammatical truth if we have been bathed we have been bathed in the past in the blood of jesus when we came to him in faith and repentance and those effects will continue into the present and forever on into the future the cleansing of salvation does not need to be repeated which is good because it cannot be read hebrews chapter 6 Walking on this earth, though, makes our feet dirty. Speaking of Lake Louise, I remember as a young guy making the trek from the cabin over to the bathhouse, taking a shower. My parents always were like, make sure you shower. I'm like, I'm going to shower. But they were kind of gross showers. You'd try and get as clean as you could. And you'd be like, all right, I feel quite clean. And you'd dry off and you'd put on some clothes. And of course I wore flip-flops in the shower because I'm not a complete psychopath. And then I would, in those flip-flops, which were still a little damp, walk back to my cabin, and by the time I got there, my feet would be filthy. That is the picture I think here. I'm clean, my feet are not. They need to be washed once again. In fact, this very thing was set up as part of the Old Covenant tabernacle and temple. This is the instructions given for building. You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. And you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. Exodus chapter 30, verses 18 and 19. As long as our feet are still upon this earth, we will need to have them washed. And yet, we won't like it. We won't like that we keep getting them dirty. We won't seek these things out. Having been cleansed of all guilt at the price of Jesus' own blood, we will hate Even the idea of being the least bit dirty, even the bottom of our feet, truly cleansed people know the damage done by disobedience and run in the other direction. We can't stand the feeling of dirty feet or the thought, especially the thought of tracking our dirt into his presence. And so again and again, we come to him and say, I need you to wash me again and confess our sins and trust him to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? No way, Jose, in the message, I think. What did Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery? Is there no one left to condemn you? No one, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Yes, I wash you, I cleanse you. Go and sin no more. Are we going to be able to pull that off? No, not on this side of eternity but we still go with the intent of sinning no more. And I think that's all that God asks because he says to us, you're being made into a new creation. I will wash your feet, but you are indeed my own. Go and sin no more. We're going to together affirm this this prayer. We're gonna pray this uh, prayer of confession, which we pray every single month before the Lord's Supper. And I will ask you beforehand, do you intend to live a holy life even as God has made you holy in Christ, and we'll all say, yes, I do, I say it as well, and we'll know, even in our intention, our best of intentions, we're going to fail. We're going to sin. Hamartia, the Greek means to miss the mark. Even when we try our hardest, we'll miss the mark, and we know he will wash our feet. You are clean is such a simple statement. The power comes from the one making it, and that makes all the difference. If some random person walked up to you on the street and said, wow, you're really clean, you'd be like, weirdo, get away from me, you have 10 seconds. But when the Lord Jesus says it, it means something. If your neighbor or your coworker or even a family member who knew you well said to you, you know, you're spiritually spotless, it wouldn't mean much. It would mean that you were good at projecting that sense, but they can't see your heart. This is what the Pharisees had perfected. Outwardly, we look really, really spotless. Jesus says, I can see your heart, though, guy. Your heart is showing, and inside, it's dead men's bones. Inside, it's filth. Inside, it's anger and pride and lust and all the rest. But Jesus does see your heart. Every longing, every desire, every thought, everything. Still, he says, of all but Judas gathered there that day, you are clean." Even Peter, who's about to deny him right when they walk out the door. Like the next thing he does is fall asleep, which he's not supposed to do, and then say, I never met the guy, after running away and trying to solve the problem himself. Still, he says to him, you're clean. Can it really be that we are clean in his sight? Again, consider the one making the declaration. If you were on trial for a crime, And you had waived your right to a jury trial and said, I want the the judge to decide. And one day as you were walking into the courtroom, the judge was at the drinking fountain and said, by the way, you're going to be found innocent. Would that set your mind at ease? It would set mine at ease because that's the one person who has the ability to declare us so. Jesus is the one who will say whether you are or not innocent in the sight of God, whether you are clean, and he has already spoken on the matter. Romans 8 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Who is there? The devil? Come on. He's not even allowed in the area. Don't just remember who speaks these words, though, but also who he is speaking them to. It's not angels, cherubim, and seraphim. It's not great heavenly hosts wearing glowing robes. No, it's regular guys. Guys who screwed up a lot. If you've read the Gospels, you know that's the case. They dropped the ball. They were often motivated by the wrong things. Pride or anger or fear. And we feel the burden of the flesh just as they must have. The the besetting sins that we think ought to completely disqualify us from entering into God's presence. This thrice holy God in whom there can be no darkness at all. And we say, oh, but there's darkness in me. But there's good news. If you're in Christ, you are clean because you stand in the righteousness of another. This whole chapter starts with this statement, this very, very complex sentence that John writes that basically, if you take all the parts out of the middle, just says Jesus loved his own and loved them to the end. To the end. And you go, "Ah, I had a good beginning. I feel like I've lost the way somewhere this week. I feel like I yelled at my kids one too many times to come to the Lord's table. Probably 10 or 15 other things that I did that should disqualify me. My feet are very dirty. He doesn't just love you at the beginning, but to the end. The Greek word there, telos, means end in the sense of like goal. All the way to the end. The goal. Perfection. He will one day take all of you that is still rooted in the old Adam, the old Eve, and burn it away. We call that glorification. He will love you all the way to the very end. But when we remember who he's speaking to, remember that that John also goes out of his way to remind us Judas is there. Judas, into whom Satan has already entered, we're we're not 100% sure what to do with that. Is this like a possession and, and Satan is actually possessing Judas? Or is this just a sense of him implanting an idea, a notion in Judas that he should betray Jesus? I I lean more toward the latter. But whatever the case, he's there. And so when Jesus says, you are clean, he amends it with, though not all of you. One of you is not. And, And he's there for the foot washing. Although not for the institution of the sacrament. When people gather together for the reading and preaching of the word, for the singing of hymns, even for Holy Communion, there are often people there who are still at enmity with God. And that's good, because they need to hear the gospel as much or more as the rest of us. But those people who have not been washed should not take part. A quick wash of the feet, a participation in a holy ritual or ceremony is not what such a person needs. They need to be plunged beneath the fountain, the blood of Jesus, the waters of baptism. They need to be bathed and made clean first before they begin having their feet washed on the regular. But when we've been cleansed, if you've put your faith in Jesus, if there was a time that you said to him, here's my sin, I'm yours, Jesus, save me, wash me, make me new, then you are clean. Not just clean, don't miss that there's an adjective here. Catharas halos clean, holy. Totally, completely clean, or as the King James says, clean every (laughs) whit. Every wit. Most wits? Nah, every wit. Completely clean in God's sight. There's no qualifications here. Scour the text for any little qualification. Not you're clean enough. It's not you can be clean or you will be clean. You are clean, free of every impurity. And look at the tense here, present tense in this moment. Not you were clean when you first came to me, but we know that you messed it up. Not you could have been clean if only you'd done this or that, but the ship has sailed. No, he tells them here and now at this table where we are gathered together, you are clean. This is the end game of that good news of great joy which shall be for all people announced when he first came to this world. So, if you have received this good news and been washed in the blood, where is your great joy when we gather together for the Lord's Supper? We drink the very blood of Christ, not corporeally, but spiritually. Don't hesitate. Mm, I don't know. Should I, I? I'm not perfect. Don't hesitate. This is the very blood that washed you clean. Drink it down. This is the very body broken to bear your guilt. Eat all of it. As we come into His presence to sup with Him, the very supper itself reminds us at every single turn why we have such a privilege. And there is a certain false piety that will come to the table. Or come into God's presence and overplay our unworthiness. As if it hasn't been overwhelmed by the worthiness of the lamb. But it has. It's a temptation, I think, for us to disbelieve. Just like Peter did. Pull our feet back and say, I don't know about this. This seems a little weird. I think some people act a bit like Joseph's brothers. You remember how Joseph's brothers didn't like him because he was dad's favorite. And he was a little bit cocky. Oh, he's a lot cocky. They beat him up, they threw him in a well, they sold him to Arab slave traders, and off he went, they lied and told their dad, he's dead. They put some blood on his coat of many colors, you've seen the musical, and then they brought it to him, and and that was that. And then one day, there was a great famine, and they went to Egypt. Egypt. And you know the story. During that time, God and his providence had brought out of the pit of a dungeon up to second in command of all of Egypt, the right-hand man of the king of the world, basically, is Joseph. And he sees these guys coming, his brothers, and he says, oh, I've got to mess with them. And so he gathers them all together. And they're thinking, what is it? What does he want with us? We don't belong here. We're just ordinary people. What are we doing here? I think a lot of people come to this holy meal with that heart. I don't quite belong here. I don't know. I I know what I've sinned. People looking at me don't know what I've done, but undoubtedly God does. Undoubtedly he does. And then he says, you are clean if you are in him. Or later, remember when when he really springs the trap. And oh, it's it's just such a wonderfully ironic story and full of so many fun twists and turns. But Joseph frames them for a crime. Again, I think just to mess with them brings his brothers back before him. But then there's the moment of reveal where he says, surprise, it's me. Your brother you rejected and mistreated and disowned. And here I am wearing the king's signet ring with all the power and your fate in my hands. And they thought, this is it. Our sins have found us out. He's definitely going to kill us. In one sense, this actually is our situation because we come before God And we have disowned him and mistreated him. Remember the parable of the vineyard. That's exactly what they do. He sends servant, 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 and they kick them out. And then he says, well, they'll respect my son. The son goes and they say, oh, this is the heir. They drag him outside the city. They beat him. They kill him. They put him to death. And what is the response of the vineyard owner? He says, I'm going to go in there and bring the, the hammer of God's vengeance down on these men and kill all of them. And yet, we are clean as he invites us to his table with him, our Lord Jesus says, you are wholly clean. Clean every whit. Not you'll get there. Not if you keep on eating this bread and drink, you'll step your way up to one day having clean status. But no. I may be beating a dead horse a little bit here, but let me beat it. You are clean. Have you been washed in the blood of Jesus? You are clean. As we come before Jesus... We are going to ask Him in a moment to wash our feet again, to cleanse us of the dust of this world and its curse before we joyfully gather as invited guests to receive the very body and blood which He gave to set us free. It says in the Scriptures, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. And I say to you today, if the Son has called you clean, then you are clean indeed. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this little pronouncement which we find nestled into the middle of this object lesson about serving one another and being humble and emulating You. And Lord, we thank You for all of it. We thank You for Your Word which is so chock full of truth that we could read the same passage Every day for a hundred years and not exhausted. Lord, we confess that even though this is the case, we often neglect Your Word. Reading it just a bit here and there, we pray that we would be drawn to it. And when we find it, we would, like Gideon wringing out his fleece, find every bit of truth that You have for us hidden in Your Word. That Lord, we would come before You and know that You have washed us. You have made us clean. And we can come to You as sons and daughters saying, I've fallen again wash my feet, forgive my sins, make me whole again, and that you will cheerfully embrace us and welcome us like the Father welcomed that lost son. Lord, we know that you are a good God, a merciful God, that you love us and that you will love us to the end. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.